0: Open God's holy word to the twenty-fourth psalm, the twenty-fourth psalm, a psalm of David. The earth is Yahweh's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands. And a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false. And does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing. From Yahweh. And righteousness. From the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him. Who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the King of glory, Selah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, Lord of all, forgive us of all the times when we pretend otherwise as if something were ours or as if there were another who was Lord. And may we lift up our hearts to you now, and to you alone, make your bride pure and holy, washing her with your word, fitting her for the bridegroom, and Lord, may he come quickly. In his name, amen. This psalm wasn't composed as a gentle harp, Solo. This psalm has brass. I remember one seminary professor occasionally referring to the sweet harp music of Israel. Bah! This psalm has pomp and glory. It was no doubt full of percussion and trumpets. This is a psalm for a military marching band. If not the occasion, then certainly the setting for this psalm, as far as the imagery it's drawing on, is found in the Ark of the Covenant coming into Jerusalem. It was over the Ark that the manifest presence of God dwelt in the most holy place of the tabernacle. And that was significant of him as dwelling there as king. In Psalm 132, 7 and 8, we read, Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. This is the footstool of a king, the ark itself. Arise, O Yahweh, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. It is from this place that he rules, and he rules in power among his people. Another psalm adds, The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The cherubim were those angelic creatures associated with the throne of God. As far as decoration within the tabernacle, you remember they're only found within the most holy place on the curtains. And on top of the, the lid to the ark called the atonement cover, there were those two angelic creatures, these two cherubim with arms, swings uplifted, and over them God dwelt in manifest glory. And so it was this tent, as Israel wandered through the wilderness, that was in the center of their camp. And it was in the center of their procession as they marched through the wilderness. This was the king's tent. But now, this tent is no longer to wander. It's to come to a permanent resting site in the land God had promised them. So ponder the significance of this for a people who had so long been sojourners. And then following that, who had been slaves in a foreign land. And yes, they've been in the land now through the period of the judges and through Saul, but the tent was seemingly falling into disarray. The ark had been captured, but now it's coming to rest in this city. First Chronicles 15, 1 through 15 gives the most detailed account of the preparations that David made. He learned from his earlier mistake and he now prepares the Levites to carry the ark precisely as Yahweh had directed. But not only were the Levites made ready, the entire nation was assembled. We read in 15.3 of First Chronicles, David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring the ark of Yahweh to its place which he had prepared for it. And then we go on to read this. 1 Chronicles 15, David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as singers who should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals to raise sounds of joy. So the Levites appointed Heman, the son of Joel, and of his brothers, Asaph, the son of Berechiah, and the sons of Merari, their brothers, Ethan, the son of Cushea, and with him the brothers of the second order, Zechariah, Jehazel, Shemiramoth, Je, Jehiel, Unai, Eliah, Benaniah, Maaseah, Mattathiah, Eliphalu, and Micaneah. And the gatekeepers, Obed-Edom and Jael, the singers Heman, Asaph, Ethan, were to sound bronze cymbals, Zechariah, aziel Shemiramoth. Jael, Unai, Eliab, Maaseah, and Benaniah were to play harps according to Almoth. But Mattathiah, Eliphalu, Micaneah, Obed-Edom, Jael, and Azaziah were to lead with lyres according to the Shimonith. Chinaniah, leader of the Levites in music, should direct the music, for he understood it. Barakiah and Elkanah were to, were to be gatekeepers for the ark. Shebaniah, Jehoshaphat, Nethanel, Emesiah, Zechariah, Benaniah, and Eliezer, the priests, uh, should blow trumpets before the ark of God. Obed-Edom and Jehiah were to be gatekeepers for the ark. So David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of thousands went to bring up the ark of the covenant of Yahweh from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. And because God helped the Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of Yahweh, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. David was clothed with a fine linen robe, but is also were all the levites who were carrying the ark and the singers and Chinnaniah and all the lead, the leader of all the, of the music of the singers and david wore linen linen ephod so all israel brought up the ark of the covenant of yahweh with shouting to the sound of the horn trumpets and cymbals and made loud music on harps and lyres the reason why i went to the trouble of trying to pronounce all the names was to give you some indication of the extent, the organization, the, the, the intensity of this moment for them as they're bringing the ark to the city of Jerusalem. Now it's true, we're not told specifically that that was the occasion for which this psalm was written. But here, within the psalm, we have Yahweh in procession to His city. So, if this is not the occasion for which this was written, it's certainly the background which David is drawing upon when he composes it. The psalm has three stanzas. You can notice them quickly by the white space in between it. The the ESV, other translations do well in marking off the sections of the psalm. The first regards the king's domain in verses 1 through 2. The second Concerns entrance into the king's presence, his throne room, verses three through six, and the third, the procession of the king, verses seven through ten. And so the first two verses show us that the victorious king who is to march into a city is no territorial deity. He's not like the gods of the Canaanites, limited to some space. He is Lord of all. The earth is Yahweh's in the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. He's not simply worshipped by a people in a specific geographical location. He is the Lord of all, whether or not they recognize Him. He's not part of a pantheon of gods who have divvied things up and sought to be experts in some kind of sphere of rule and And taken different allotments with the nations and the peoples. He is the one true God. In the Hebrew text, it's very emphatic as His name is the first word of the psalm. More rigidly translated, it would be Yahweh's is the earth. His name dominates over the psalm as He dominates over all the earth. Specifically, the earth or the world here refer to the habitable world, the part you can stub your toe on, the part that isn't wet. And with that, the fullness and those who dwell therein, those are meant to be paralleled, is referring to men. So Yahweh is Lord of men. He has dominion over those who exercise dominion, he's king of kings, he's lord of lords. There is a dignity, a godlikeness, even, in owning property. Yahweh to man made in his image said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. It's godlike to have a domain, something that is yours for which you are a steward of unto the glory of God, but beware of being too godlike with it. Chesterton advocated for the dignity of this kind of ownership writing. The truth is that to the moderately poor, the home is the only place of liberty. Nay, it's the only place of anarchy. It's the only spot on earth where a man can alter arrangements suddenly, make an experiment, or indulge in a whim. Everywhere else he goes, he must accept the strict rules of the shop, inn, club, or museum that he happens to enter. He can eat his meals on the floor in his own house if he likes. I often do it myself. It gives a curious, childish, poetic picnic feeling. For a plain, hard-working man, the home is not the one tame place in a world of adventure. It is the one wild place in the world of rules and set tasks. Well, this is all very true regarding the rules of men, but not regarding the laws of God. To own some bit of dirt is to act as a king and image forth God. But no, any plot of soil you are said to legally own in the highest court is given to you as a steward. The earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof. The God of Israel is the God of all. Over all nations, over all lands, over all peoples, Yahweh is Lord. And the reason this is so is because he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers, verse 2. You see, he's drawing heavily on Genesis 1 here. Genesis begins, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then on day 3 we read, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together and to one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. You remember when we were in 2 Peter, we were told that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, so it's drawing upon this. But the important point is not how it came about. The emphasis is that he founded it. He established it. You see, all other kings gain land and territory by Conquest or by its being bequeathed to them. It can be either the conquest of war or the conquest of discovery, but the way it's found is either by conquest or it's being bequeathed to them by someone or a heritage that did conquer it. All other kings gain land by conquest or discovery. Yahweh, however, and Yahweh alone made his own dirt. He took nothing. He made all. He outsourced nothing. He relied on nothing. He depended on no one else. He's owed nothing. He he owns no one else anything. All is His and all is His in the most absolute sense. He made it all and He keeps it all by the word of His power. Now... From such an expansive domain, we go to his particular dwelling place, asking who could find access before so holy and awesome a God? Who could stand before him? Before we answer who, Let's be clear as to where this dwelling place is. Who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh? That is a reference to Zion, Jerusalem. And who shall stand in his holy place? The tabernacle, later the temple. So the omnipotent Lord, the one who's Lord over all, all powerful, who is also omnipresence, dwells in manifest glory in Jerusalem. Keep that in mind, because it's very important to not misunderstanding what follows. But before we deal with the misunderstanding, let's build up the potential misunderstanding first. The emphasis in this stanza is on who. Who may gain entrance to the throne room of Yahweh? And the answer is, he who has clean hands. And a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Clean hands, a pure heart, a reference both to outward actions and our inward motivations. Spurgeon masterfully comments, Those who draw near to God must have clean hands. What monarch would have servants with filthy hands to wait at his table? They who were ceremonially unclean could not enter... The Lord's house, which was made with hands, much less shall the morally defiled be allowed to enjoy spiritual fellowship with a holy God. If our hands are now unclean, let us wash them in Jesus' precious blood, and so let us pray unto God, lifting up pure hands. But clean hands would not suffice unless they were connected with a pure heart. True religion is heart work. We may wash the outside of the cup and the platter as long as we please, but if the inward parts be filthy, we are filthy altogether in the sight of God. For our hearts are more truly ourselves than our hands are. We may lose our hands and yet live, but we could not lose our heart and still live. The very life of our being lies in the inner nature, and hence the imperative need of purity within. There must be a work of grace in the core of the heart, as well as in the palm of the hand. Or our religion is a delusion. May God grant that our inward powers may be cleansed by the sanctifying spirit so that we may love holiness and abhor all sin. The pure in heart shall see God. All others are but blind bats. Stone blindness in the heart, in the eyes arises from stone in the heart. Dirt in the heart throws dust in the eyes. Must have clean hands and a pure heart. Now, the lifting up the soul to what is false refers to the worship of idols. And I take because of the parallelism here that, that not swearing deceitfully doesn't refer to truth telling in general. But it's saying that they take the name of Yahweh upon their lips in covenant loyalty sincerely. This isn't referring to truthfulness in general but to the specific kind of truthfulness from which all true truthfulness arises. Faithfulness to the God of their salvation. Now does this answer cause you to squirm a bit? What about grace? What about justification by faith alone? Read closely. You're being told who may come before Yahweh. You are not being told how we come before Yahweh same three letters but the meaning is very different and this is where where this dwelling place was is so important it was in the city that God had chosen to set his name among the people he had redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, he provided. He has graciously chosen this people, not because of anything they have done, and he has mercifully redeemed them. Concerning the true Israel, why were they holy? Because Yahweh, having redeemed them out of Egypt by the blood of the Lamb, before bringing them to the land of promise where He would set His name in a specific place, brought them to Sinai, where He gave them His law, telling them that He's doing so, that they might be holy as He is holy. The people of God are a holy people because of their holy God. This is not the holiness. This is not holiness for salvation. This is the holiness of salvation. Do not doubt this. If you would see God, you must be holy. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. Remember the author of the Hebrews exhorts us, Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. J.C. Ryle warns, Most men hope to go to heaven when they die, but few it may be feared take trouble to consider whether they would, be, whether they would enjoy heaven if they got there. Heaven is essentially a holy place. Its inhabitants are all holy. Its occupations are all holy. To be really happy in heaven, it is clear and plain that we must be somewhat trained and made ready for heaven while we are on earth. He continues, The favorite idea of many that dying men need nothing except absolution and forgiveness of sins to fit them for their great change is a profound delusion. We need the work of the Holy Spirit as well as the work of Christ. We need the renewal of the heart as well as the atoning blood. We need to be sanctified as well as to be justified. What could an unsanctified man do in heaven if by any chance he got there? Let that question fairly be looked in the face and fairly answered. No man can possibly be happy in a place where he is not in his element and where all around him is not congenial to his taste, habits, and character. When an eagle is happy in an iron cage, when a sheep is happy in the water, when an owl is happy in the blaze of noonday sun, when a fish is happy on dry land, then and not till then will I admit that the unsanctified man could be happy in heaven." God saves none but sinners. But every sinner saved is a saint being sanctified. This is in no way antithetical to Augustus Toplady's plea. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling but sinners clinging to the cross of Christ will find those hands to be washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. Those who come with empty hands to Yahweh, claiming no righteousness of their own, actually claiming those hands to be defiled and filthy, will find them to be cleansed not only of the guilt of their sin, but the power of their sin, but the power of sin that rules over them. Not perfectly in this life, but more and more so it will be their experience unto glorification. It is this person who will receive blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation, verse five. And that we're being told who and not how is again reemphasized with this. Because they find blessing from Yahweh, the covenant God who redeems his people, and they find righteousness from the God of their salvation. All of this describes, we're told, those who seek Yahweh. Psalms 14, Psalm 53, Romans 3, other passages tell us that none seek God left to themselves. We've not been left to ourselves. The seeker creates seekers by His grace. We have been made holy We are being made holy and we will be made holy all for this purpose. That we may ascend the hill of Yahweh and we might stand in His holy place. And then He as an act of grace upon top of grace will bless us and reward us. We've been made holy, we are being made holy, we will be made holy by God, for God. Do you remember Esther? Fearful to come before the king, who was also her bridegroom. Fearful, explaining... All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. Except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these thirty days. Saints, saved by grace, you need not worry for some golden scepter to be held out he's held it out in christ and he's promised that we shall ascend and we shall stand in his holy place whereas verses 3 through 6 anticipate the saints coming before the king verses 7 through 10 Speak of the king coming to his throne. But if Yahweh is Lord over all, where has he been? Why has he not been on his throne? Well, you remember that the tabernacle was patterned after heavenly things. Hebrews 8.5, speaking of the priests, says, They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. God has always sat on his heavenly throne and has never been vacated. But the tabernacle speaks of God, speaks of heaven, Coming down among sinners. And he explained how was it that the Holy God could be among sinners. And that's what all the sacrifices were about. He dwells among them by sacrifice. In addition, the art now is coming to its permanent resting place. See, this is the procession. Of the conquering king, of the victorious king, marching into a city in victory. What has been conquered? He is Lord of all. Now understand, listen to how God spoke of his name coming to rest in a place in Deuteronomy 12 as Israel is on the verge of entering the promised land and the conquest of that land taking place. Deuteronomy 12:1 through 13 Moses instructs them saying, These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days of your life on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods. On the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree, you shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of the place. You shall not worship Yahweh your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that Yahweh your God will choose out of all your tribes to put His name and make His habitation there. There you shall go and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, the firstborn of your herd and of your flock, and there you shall eat before Yahweh your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households and all that you undertake, in which Yahweh your God has blessed you. When you go over the Jordan and live in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you to inherit, and when He gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that Yahweh your God will choose to make His name dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contribution that you present and the finest of your vow offerings that you vow to Yahweh. And you shall rejoice before Yahweh your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants and the Levite that is within your towns. You see, all of this, was anticipating a day when all the enemies of God will be placed under David's greater son who delivers us from all our enemies. And all enemies being defeated and conquered, he will come into his city and dwell permanently in peace with his people. Nothing less is anticipated here than the city of God spoken of in Revelation 21. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. As an ascension psalm. And that's appropriate. Because following Christ's ascension. Was his session. At the right hand of the Father. But can't you see. That even more than an ascension psalm. This is an advent psalm. Not of Christ's first advent. Whenever he came clothed in humility. But of his second advent. When he will come. Clothed in glory. When all enemies will be forever put under His feet. When all creation will be made new. Whenever that host of people from every tribe, every people, every nation will shout. Lift up your heads, O gates. And lift them up, O ancient doors. That the King of glory may come in. Whenever that heavenly city descends and the heaven and earth collide and the dwelling place of God is forever with men. Who is this King of glory? His name is Jesus. Emmanuel. God with us. Perhaps Revelation 11 gives The best commentary on all that was anticipated here. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants. The prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let's pray. Father, praise, glory, and honor be to the Lamb. Oh, how our hearts anticipate that day of His coming. But until then, we get glimpses of it, taste of it, as Your church is the temple of the living God, where Your Spirit dwells. Father, may we be made holy As we long for this and anticipate it more and more to your glory. In Christ's name, amen.